oh my goodness, I am so excited. Like, when am I not excited? But no, this time I'm like, I can't even contain myself. <laughs> now, just to remind you, you're on the Superwomen podcast today. Superwomen Can podcast. And I have an amazing guest. Oh, you are in for a treat. And what's really exciting about this individual that's coming on today is that we have been together on the LinkedIn Accelerator program which was intense this time last year. And we got together, we met in person, which was brilliant. We did, we collaborated, we did some amazing lives on LinkedIn. And I learned, I actually genuinely learned. So I am excited to be able to share with you this individual, but some amazing nuggets that she's going to be sharing with you today as well. Without further ado, can you introduce yourself, Funky? <laughs> Thank you so much, my dear. Honestly, I've been really looking forward to this. Yeah, so my name's Funke Abimbola. I, uh, gosh, to try and summarise what I do at this point is so tricky, but I started off life as a corporate lawyer. So my career uh, was in corporate law for a very long time. I worked across four different uh, law firms, really enjoyed the exposure to the business world uh, and everything else. Then I decided to pivot and move uh, in-house, as we lawyers called it. I wanted to move into industry. And I come from a family of doctors, so healthcare was always going to be a priority for me in some way. And I joined a large uh, global biotech company initially as a lawyer, but during my almost 10 years there, moved on to other roles that were compliance focused, operational, business unit, running various aspects of Brexit and what had come out of Brexit. And my diversity and equity work until that point was always as a volunteer, Samantha, I'd uh, done a lot of work off the side of my desk around the legal profession, specifically solicitors, and I still am a solicitor. And I was recognized uh, at various levels for that work, had a lot of impact, drove a lot of change. I talk a lot about working for the cause rather than the applause as well. It really, for me, it's about driving that change first and foremost. And I just happen to have then been recognized with awards, but that definitely is not why I do this work. In fact, they have much easier ways of winning awards than getting stuck into DEI work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I started commercializing my DEI work only about three years ago, Samantha. Following George Floyd's murder, it became very clear that there was huge demand for me as DEI specialist. And that for the first time, I started charging for my time. I ran a business very successfully for two and a half years. And it was through the success of that business that I joined the organization I'm with now. So what I do now is I'm a partner within a global organizational consulting firm. And I focus on DEI solutions to clients across Europe, Middle East and Africa. So that's a quick canter through my career to date. <laughs> wow, amazing. You know what? I don't know what it was, but I think the thing that's still stuck in my head is she says, I'm from a family of doctors, but she became a lawyer. <laughs> like, Was that you trying to go against the grain? Okay, everyone's a doctor, so I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm, I'm really <laughs> curious about that. <laughs> it, it was a really big deal at the time. I'm of Nigerian heritage and, and there'll be a lot of friends of mine who are not only Nigerian, but very similar backgrounds where parents have very 
or they used to, it's less so now, but have very clear ideas about what their children should do. I'm the eldest as well, which comes with a whole load of responsibility in Nigerian setting. And both parents are doctors, younger siblings are doctors, aunts and uncles. In fact, my father before he passed away, ran a very large private hospital, very well-known private hospital in Lagos. And the plan was that we'd all do different specialities and all of that. I had a couple of major barriers to a career in medicine. I cannot stand the sight of blood. I honestly just can't, even my own blood, right? So if I cut myself, <laughs> I, I literally start feeling faint. I've got severe needle phobia. It's really bad. I really am fearful of injections and, and the thought of injecting someone else again, even talking about it makes me feel quite sick. And I don't like seeing people in pain. So I wouldn't have been able to stay calm and measured and the things that so those are three pretty major barriers. Oh, yeah. So career in medicine, it was a big deal when I told my dad I didn't want to become a doctor. He was paying my fees. And I was very worried that he might stop paying my school fees and send me back to Nigeria because I was being educated in the UK at that stage at huge expense and sacrifice. And friends of mine had been sent back home, as it were, for not doing what their parents wow. uh, wanted them to do. So that was a very real fear, Samantha. It wasn't. But bless him, my, my darling dad was so supportive. He was very upset initially because I'd helped in his hospital for years and pretended for ages that I wanted to do medicine because he was paying the fee, Samantha. And, oh. uh, how do I get out of this one? Uh, and I was helping my mom in her clinic. And so there was no sign until, really, until I chose my A-level options that I was going to do anything other than medicine. I'd done triple science GCSE, for example, as well. So it was a big, it was a tough summer. That that was a very difficult summer. Lots of tricky conversations. Teachers had to get involved. and But in the end, my wonderful dad was very supportive. And he only had one condition that had to become one of the top lawyers in the UK. Yeah. That was all he insisted on. But he was very supportive. He was very supportive. And off I went to university as an overseas student, paying three times as much fees as a home student and there was real sacrifice for him and he was very very proud of me when I graduated and, and became a lawyer so there we go <laughs> I want to start by saying I'm really sorry to hear about your dad thank it you sounds like he was a person who motivated you in the right direction and really celebrated you and it's not so I'm just I'm grateful to, to be able to talk about him so yes. we're on the subject of dad can we find out? He said he had a top hospital in Lagos. He did, yes. Tell us a little bit more about him, because obviously yeah. he's, I know he's not here with us now, but I'm sure he helped the person that we see in front of us. Amazing father, just exceptional. He had been, he'd studied medicine in Germany in the 60s, so he got a scholarship wow. to study germ, um, um, medicine in Germany, and he had to learn German first because then they didn't teach in English wow. so he spent a year learning German wow. um, and understanding the German culture and everything else and spoke fluent German really very yeah. native speaking German was so imbibed in German culture that he only ever bought a Mercedes-Benz he only ever drove Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> he was so proud of German engineering. He truly believed that was the best engineering in the world was German engineering. And he met a lot. He had very good friends from Germany because he spent a long time living there. It was at Cologne University, which is a very world globally renowned 
very old university. I think it's the equivalent of Cambridge in Germany. So he did very well academically. And rather than staying in Germany when he graduated, he returned back to Nigeria, to a post-Civil War Nigeria, to play his part in rebuilding and, and adding value. And boy, did he. He started a clinic met my mom, they got married, started having us. But all that time he was building up his practice and it ended up being this large private hospital. And I still hear from his patients. I heard from a former nurse just this week who used to work with my dad. Because when he died, I started a medical scholarship scheme to to remember him by, and that's now in its eighth year. Wow. And we've, we've now awarded almost 60 UK medical students from minority ethnic backgrounds most of whom are now doctors because over time they qualify. And so the word gets out every year that we're doing this and it's now across all the medical schools in the UK wow. and it's become a massive thing. So I always hear from former patients, people that my father helped. And I heard from somebody just this week, a former nurse who was very upset that she didn't know he died in 2012. She now lives in America and she was just singing his praises, the difference he'd made. In And he was very progressive, my father. Nigerian society is still very patriarchal even now. But my dad is was, I would say, very progressive, had a, a female leadership team. He really believed that women were the best leaders and was often challenged by people. Why, why do you see? But he had, it was always female leaders. I remember matron, the, everyone. And there were these amazingly strong women who ran, helped him to run his hospital. I don't actually remember a single male leader being appointed on that leadership team. He was very good at making sure that we all, so what often happens in Nigerian families is that the boys' education is prioritized in terms of private education. So it's not unusual to have the younger, you know, if the son is like the third child, for example, their education is prioritized. So they'll be the one who, who go to the private school. And I know families where that's the case, uh, where the girls are then sent to maybe a state school or, or less prestigious. Dad never did that. He treated all of us exactly the same. So me as the eldest being a girl, there was no question that I would then be the first to go through being privately educated and then my younger siblings followed suit. And his advice, and there's just so much I could say about my father that has been a very strong foundation for I, I am today. And I'm very grateful to have my mum still around. Of course, I do have both parents, but my father was just a force of nature. He really was exceptional. Wow, I'm so pleased that you shared this story about your father because I can now see why we have you in front of us, why you are such a force to be reckoned with in the field of diversity and inclusion. He is, he was the catalyst, wasn't he, for what he's doing. And I am so impressed with this medical scholarship. What is the medical scholarship called? Just so those who are listening, if they, if anyone is interested in it, can you share that? I know you of will course. We'll share the links to everything. Absolutely. It's good yeah. to know what the name of that is. So it's called the Akindolia Medical Scholarship. So Akindolia is my maiden name. Yep. And it's specifically for UK-based medical students from a minority ethnic background. Wow. And they typically only 5%, up to 5% of any medical school yeah. will have that criteria. It's a very small cohort. And they face all sorts of challenges. And being a visible minority. We hear really heartbreaking stories 
And because my father benefited from a scholarship, if he hadn't gotten the British Council scholarship, he wouldn't have been educated in Germany. And he would then, all the consequences that he had from that, he just wouldn't have had the privilege then to set up the medical practice he did in Lagos and and everything else. So we wanted to replicate. It was my idea. I came up with the idea. I wanted to replicate the next generation of medical leaders in my father's image but to be really broad within minority ethnic, we've got uh, a doctor who's, he, he was a medical student when he won the scholarship, but he's, he's a, from a Sikh background. He presents as a Sikh man. We've got uh, another who wears a hijab. We've got a Japanese, Korean, lots wow. of West African, because that tends to be quite a dominant demographic in medical schools. And lots of Nigerian, because we get very high volumes of Nigerian applicants. We've got Caribbean as well, lots of South Asian, different Bangladeshi, Indian, etc. So it's very broad within minority ethnic, very broad around religious beliefs. I think we've pretty much covered all our possible religious beliefs as well. And we're very proud of that. And I say we because my younger siblings do support it as well. And we save up throughout the year to, to fund it. So there's no charity. We, we haven't got the time to run a charity or anything like that. We, we simply do not have that time. So it's a scheme. It's not a charity. It's a, a scheme that's privately funded by the three of us. We save throughout the year. And then we decide how many scholarships we can award um, every year. And so far, it's been almost 60. I am so like... I am so impressed. I'm so impressed. And from someone who's coming from from a disadvantaged background and knowing the battle, visible, visibly diverse black, I know that what you're doing is absolutely incredible. You are changing lives, like literally changing lives. And anyone who's listening to into this will know this is incredible. The fact that you're not funded is blowing my mind like it is blowing my mind and we'll just have to come offline and talk about this separately but then we need to do more what can we do so I think we need to find out how we can do more for that but I want to bring this back over to you as well to find out more about what's underneath you so the first thing I'm going to come back to is your needle phobia that you mentioned because I've got a needle phobia as well, which, which is laughable as I've I had IVF um, for my first child and then gone on to have six children. Blood, all that rest, all that sort of stuff is I'm feeling you. What else about you? Tell me your story. Tell me yes. what else is hidden under that cloak of yours that makes you tick. Yeah. So I'm very proud to be a mother. You just talked about uh, being a mother. I didn't have quite as many children as you, Samantha, (laughs) I must say. I have one. I have a a son who is almost 21. We work together. We, We have a podcast series that we've just finished, series six of, and it's called The Power of Privilege and Allyship Podcast. And I work with my son on that podcast series. So we work together. We work very closely together. He's now entering his final year of his computer science degree, and he's a joy to behold. His name is Max. He's very high profile. Lots of people know he's very extroverted and very visible presence. So that is a massive driver for me. All my decisions since I've had him, his father and I were married. We no longer are, but we're still very close, the best of friends, 
co-parenting in joint alignment and we get on brilliantly as parents and have been in each other's lives for the best part of 30 years it's a long time to have someone in your life and we co-parent max really well everyone comments on how have we managed to do that after a divorce and it is possible to do it so i'm very proud of that I'm very proud of the fact that max is doing so well i'm proud of the mark he's already making in the world he's really doing a huge amount he's studying computer science he's doing loads around women in tech and getting more women into stem wow. he's a stem ambassador he's a, an ambassador student ambassador for his department he was vice president of the acs last year he he works so hard it's i it's unbelievable how hard he works and how his vision for the future and what he can do it's very exciting to see what's going to unravel for him and i've made a lot of career decisions with that in mind i've turned down opportunities i've turned down roles i came to a pivotal point in my career where I had to leave an organization because relocation was the next step. And there was absolutely no way I was going to do that, given the particular stage Max was at. And he's, I just could not do it in all good conscience. And I have no regrets about that, but it did really slightly derail my career for, for a while. I had to really look slightly differently at what the next steps would be. And that was difficult. That was really tough but I have no regrets about it at all. There was no way I was going to be moving Max away from his friends, family, support network here in the UK. So being a mother is a massive thing. I'm very proud of that. I talk about it all the time. And I always wonder why more women don't talk about being mums. It's something that is still hidden quite a lot with professional women. I find it astounding that women seem to feel that it diminishes them if they talk about their children. But I talk about Max all the time and I have no reservations in doing so. It's a, it's a key part of who I am and it makes me more efficient as a leader, frankly. Yes, that's a massive thing about my life that is a major focus point for me is being a mum, being the best possible mother I can be to Max at the different stages of his life. So he's now almost 21, but he still needs his mum. He still needs his mum. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I can just see the pride for your son, Max. Max is amazing. So I follow yourself and Max on LinkedIn and profound. Like he is definitely walking in your footsteps and granddad's footsteps and probably his dad's footsteps by the look of it as well. So I have, I'm very sure that if you go ahead and follow, we'll send, we'll put Max's links down as well. You will be, I'm pretty sure that you're going to be uh, amazed by his progress as he careers in his journey, or he journeys through his career, said the wrong yes. way around. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned co-parenting, and I'm going to go back to that because it's yeah. not something we've touched on this podcast yet, but I think it's really important that we do, and it's something that you've experienced successfully and a lot of people don't. What has, can you can you give some guidance on how you've done that? Yeah. Especially as a professional, you didn't decide to stay at home and be the, the one that stays at home and single mum at home with the child, you carried on building a successful career and co-parenting yes. and doing so successfully. That's unusual, believe it or not. It so is. It's very unusual. Tell us, let us in, tell us how you did that. Yeah. The first thing I will say is I, I am very lucky with my ex-husband. He's a responsible father. He takes great pride in being a father, we both chose to prioritize Max after the, as part of the divorce. And we we had to rise above 
the acrimony and the hurt feelings and all the full shebang, everything that goes with getting divorced. But we were both united in doing that. And that is luck, really. It's, did I have a role to play in that? Not really. He had to make that choice, right? So I'm very lucky that I had, you know, that I married the man I did and that he's such a great father. But that being said, once you can make the decision to rise above the feelings and actually focus on the fact that the parenting is what is really important. It's aligning then on what your values as a parent. I remember us sitting down and thinking, okay, education, you look at the key decisions and how, how do you, what, what sort of young man is it that we want at the end of all of this, right? He's very strategic, Mike's husband, and it helps that he did economics at uni and he's very entrepreneurial. So he was very that way in, in tune with strategy, long-term vision. This is the sort of way that we were talking about it, but you need to look at that. You need to start with the end in mind, as Stephen Covey says in his seven habits for highly effective people and work backwards. So if we want a confident, secure very tall young man as he's ended up he's six five and uh, British born <laughs> Nigerian heritage how do we make sure that's the end product as far as we're within are able to control that and it meant it meant we really had to reinforce this strong sense of identity what did it mean for him Max to have been born in southeast London Nigerian heritage, British born, he now has dual citizenship. We were both Nigerian born and then later acquired slightly different foundations there. It was a real priority, for example, that Max went to Nigeria as soon as we were able to take him. And he's been to Nigeria several times, visited. He's got a very strong understanding of all aspects of Nigerian life, the good, the bad, that he's very strong and firm and firmly rooted in his Nigerian heritage, very proud to be Nigerian. Very important for a young black man to have that. And we very recently returned from yet another trip to Nigeria. And he will almost certainly end up working in Nigeria at some stage. And I'm delighted that's the case. He's very proud of his Nigerian roots and also very proud of his British aspects as well. We came together as parents and decided this is what we want to end up with. And it's not going to help. If we want a confident young man at the end of all of this, us slagging each other off and however justified we feel it might be, and not, neither of us are without our flaws, that's actually not going to help with this young man, right? We made that decision very early on. It was very difficult. And of course, your emotions are running high. But we were looking at the end game. We're looking at the forward. And thank goodness we we did that early on, contained it. Uh, and we stayed good friends. My ex-husband, he fairly recently remarried, but he is so supportive still of my goals, my aspirations, my career. I get on very well with his wife. It's You have to invest that time if you really want to make sure that your children come out of a, a divorce or a marriage or whatever relationship breaking down, you do need to, to commit and dedicate and invest. And it breaks my heart when I see far too many couples who don't do that because they're really just shortchanging themselves and causing problems later down the line. Wow. I definitely, I think I'm going to have to say, hold my hats up to you because I think that you've done been incredible. One, because it's very rare putting your feelings aside. So that was the, the biggest thing that I got from what you've just said, putting your feelings aside, putting your son first, putting his, like it said, the end in, putting the end in, having the end in mind. 
and putting his future ahead of ahead basically was was great and the fact that you've got a mature way of doing it for both you and your husband ex-husband I think that's what's really helped Max Max is amazing you created an amazing person human (laughs) and he's going to go on to great things really great and you talked about being a mum and is there any as you careered and you did your, your journey you mentioned something that you had to make a decision in terms of you're not going to pick up and leave and it derailed your career what was that like it was a very difficult transition for about a year or so after making that decision it was really tough because once you come off a track whatever that career track looks like It's then questioned in all sorts of ways, right? If you're then being considered for other opportunities and your reason for your why may not resonate. It may not land well with different organizations, however justified you might feel about that being the reason. So it was very difficult. I found myself feeling quite lost for a period of time. I can't lie. Having to lean very heavily on support networks, friends, family, Max himself, I have very good friends, like my tribe, I call them, who've known me for a very long time and are on my side and give me good faith criticism and all the critical friend, all the things that you'd want from a a group of people. I, I leaned very heavily on them during that period because it was quite literally difficult to see the wood for the trees. Once then the clear next step has been cut off or you've chosen not to go down that route, it then becomes very hard actually to try and realign and really delve deep. And I had a lot of coaching. I had a, a really good coach who helped me through that process. It was hard, but you look back over the span of a lifetime, you realize that that was only 12 months out of, and I was looking at the longer term gain, game rather around that. But it was hard. It was very difficult, very tough. And that's one thing I would say to anyone listening is that journeys to whatever you define as success, they're ups and downs. The Overall trajectory might be upwards for me, but there have been some real lows during that period. There have been times when I've really questioned what on earth am I doing? Which way, what is the best way forward? You're often hearing conflicting advice from people and it can be, your head can be spinning, quite frankly. Uh, And that's very much a part, and it's an ongoing part. There are things that I'm thinking about now where I'm thinking, gosh, where do I realign, refocus and so on? It's an ongoing thing. So just knowing that's a part of the journey and that everyone who has achieved any level of success has gone through that. If they're telling you otherwise, they are lying to you. They are lying. And I wish more leaders were authentic (laughs) and open about that. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned something which was interesting. You said a lot of women don't talk about being a mum and don't bring that to the kind of table in their professional lives. And And you mentioned here about the struggles that you've gone through making decisions as a professional mother and then it made me question is that the reason that perhaps women are more reserved about it because they're constantly having a little internal battle on which one are they prioritizing which one am I going to feel guilty about today is it going to be the work guilty is it going to be mum guilt which one am I picking I'm interested to unpick that with you yeah I we call it a hypothesis. <laughs> Definitely. It's so interesting because I had a conversation with a colleague earlier today in the context of a, a piece of work we're doing with a client and women, female leaders within this client organization, they're, they're having all sorts of challenges. And one of them is how do they identify, what is a female leader? Like 
what does that even mean? What does that look like? The organization in question is very male dominated with all the behaviors and historical behaviors that go with that. And they're trying to change that. To be fair to the client organization, they do want to change that. But when they promote women to leadership roles, the women are really struggling because there's a lack of inclusion or appreciation of a different leadership style, whatever that might look like. Are they having to fit the mold of the historical legacy style or can they forge ahead? If they forge ahead in a different way, is that going to be judged differently? And I think that's the challenge that women have is that... When I've asked, so I asked one person why she didn't talk about her children. I actually came out and asked this lady. She was an academic, still is, a professor of law. Uh, And I'll say no more than that because she'll be identified if I say any more. And she said she felt that she'd be judged if she talked about her children and even mentioned the kids. She felt that might somehow diminish, she might be seen as being diminished in some way within her particular university, academia. She said that's the reason why a lot of women, they're all mothers. The vast majority do have children and several children. We're not just talking one or two. So, and I thought that was so sad that she didn't know how to reconcile or that like what her identity would be and actually felt she'd be penalized in some way, looked down as being less than. I thought, gosh, that must be a very similar reason with other women. I found out it's a very much a generational thing though, I have to say. So certainly within law firms, it was a slightly older generation of the first batch of female partners, if you like, from maybe 20 or 30 years ago. They felt that they were re- they didn't know how to be as leaders and they were still experimenting around that. I think that the crop of partners coming through now that have come through in the last five or 10 years, very different generation, really, and very different way of leading. And I see a lot more openness, actually, around being mothers and how that builds into their leadership style. It's a tricky balance, Them We all worry about being judged harshly, right? So that's where no, it comes I, from. Yeah, interesting. I think it's, a, it's something we can probe a little bit further down the line again. So for me, I think that it took me a very long time to have children. So it took, I was IVF. I didn't, it took me 10 years. So I had built my career. As soon as I got pregnant, interestingly, I started to face discrimination, sexual discrimination. I was made redundant, the only person out of 16 people as soon as I got back. Instead of being told I'd been promoted, a new manager came in and was like, no, you're not going to do as well as we expect you to. And it was based on the fact that I had a child. So I can understand why. I Recently, last year, I was um, volunteering on a helpline called Pregnant and Screwed. I don't know if you've heard of Pregnant and Screwed. I have, Yes. And on that helpline is women who are calling in to get legal support for what they're going through. So as a HR um, person who's qualified, I was on that line and the number, I can't believe how busy, how intensely busy it was on and how many people, how many general women were calling through for the same discriminative issues that cannot be a coincidence and the fact that I know I've been through it it cannot be a coincidence so I can understand that where people can try to shelter themselves and put and their future really so I'm going to leave it on that subject because I think we can come back to this and probably another podcast and maybe when you do some more research as well and have another conversation about it but I would like because there's so many things that you share today just to give us five tips for women, particularly women who are of colour, because they obviously are the most underrepresented, what can they do going through as a mother, especially in their careers to continue 
to be the success that they want to be? If you could give five tips or even three, what would yes. they be? I think so, I've got a few from what you said already. But yeah. From you. Yeah. So I'll, I'll stick with three because three is a bit of a magic number when it comes to, to top tip. The first thing is to have a very strong sense of your identity as a woman of color. Woman of color, what does that mean? Is it a visible minority? Is it, we, we talk about women of color. But within that, there's any number of intersections of nationality, race, ethnicity, religion. Having a very strong sense of what your particular identity is essential, because if you don't have that, people will define that for you. People, random strangers quite often, will be the one imposing on you what your identity should be. If you're a British-born Bangladeshi and you're Muslim, then own that in its entirety to the extent that you feel you want to. Don't allow others to impose that on you. If you're Nigerian-born, naturalized British as I am, that means a different, completely different thing again. So the identity piece and being absolutely grounded in your identity is really important to know that your identity is not being defined by the media, other people's narratives. Really important that you have that. From that then comes confidence, because once you have your identity, the next tip I would say is to be firmly rooted and confident in what you are naturally good at and the areas where you know that no matter how hard you try, you're only going to be able to improve. You're never going to be able to say you can play to that strength. I'll be very honest. One of my weak areas that I constantly have to improve on is I'm really impatient, Samantha. And I'm now a, a woman of a certain age. I'm having to accept that mean that I'm never going to become one of these very patient people who, you know, but I've had to learn to be a bit more patient and to remind myself that the reason why I might get very irritated in certain situations is because I am really impatient. I've turned that around into a strength by propelling a sense of urgency with whatever yeah. needs doing, right? But it's taken me years to work that out. Knowing what your strengths are, I'm naturally extroverted. I'm great with people. I'm warm and engaging. I've leveraged those aspects of myself into an empathetic leadership style. And every time I feel my patience, literally all the signs are there that I'm feeling impatient about the situation, whatever. I think, how can I build a sense of urgency around this rather than it coming across as me being impatient, etc.? So the confidence in knowing who you are, what you're good at and what you need to improve on. That's the second thing that's really important. The third thing I would say then flows from that is where's your focus going to be? Because we only have a limited amount of time available. Time's our most precious resource. And I have constant demands on my time. And I'm really disciplined about how much time I devote. So in any given week, my top priority in terms of time is my day job. Of course it is, because that's what I'm being employed on a full-time basis. I'm a partner. Uh, I would be doing a huge disservice to both myself, my firm, and my colleagues if that wasn't for the hours that I know. I absolutely, and I maximize those hours. I make the most of that time. I'm constantly looking at ways of being more efficient with our time and so on. That is a top priority. But then I, I then think, okay, in the evenings when I'm doing the medical scholarships, at the moment, applications have closed for this year and we're judging and getting references in and there's a process we're going through I only have two hours a week to do that that's it I I, I will not if I'm going to build in self-care and going for long walks and all the things I need to do to be able to unwind at the end of the day exercise every morning etc 
I, I know I have a maximum of two hours to go through all the references per week. Wow. So it means I become super efficient. I'm not going to be doing it in my lunch breaks ad hoc. I know that, okay, Saturday morning will be when I'll go through whatever's come in. And it's a far more efficient way of doing it. Quickly, I can update the take because I have an Excel spreadsheet to know where we are. And so you become really efficient when you know what your areas of focus are. And indeed, with other extra curricular work that I do, because I do a whole load of social diversity work. There's a charity I work very closely with called Speakers for Schools. Again, I know in any given week, there's only so many events I can attend for in a month. There's only so much time I can devote to any Zoom calls. So I re it makes you really prioritize what it is you then devote your time to. And you're far more impactful that way. That's the whole point. We don't have endless amounts of time for anything. So those are three things, identity, being strong and firm in your identity, then leading to confidence in what you're good and not so good at doing, and then the focus of your time and prioritizing and everything. Those are the three things I would say. Wow. Thank you so much. They're, they're three amazing nuggets. And for those who are listening, I think that there's everyone can apply all three of those very simply very easily you don't need to do any extra additional work apart from on self and I love that so thank you so much and I actually now feel really privileged even more privileged than I did before you started that you actually dedicated your number three your focus on your time to being here I feel super special and for those who are listening you are extremely special because we've had Funky joining us today now where can we find you because you give so much on LinkedIn, which is my favorite platform, as for those who are listening. Where can we find you? Tell us. Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn as Professor Dr. Funke Abimbola MBE, because there were quite a few Funke Abimbolas and it was becoming confusing. So I'm the only one with that title on LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active social media wise. That's the best use of my time. Again, going back to time. I'm on Instagram really just to keep up with the kids. You know what I mean? Like my son, <laughs> his university friends. And I'm, I don't do much on Instagram, but I am on Instagram as Professor Funke. And then I'm also on Twitter. I do even less on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Champ1Diversity, but I really don't do a lot on Twitter uh, these days. Facebook is purely for friends and family. There's all sorts of privacy settings. You won't be able to find me if you search uh, on Facebook. <laughs> um, but yeah, LinkedIn is the main place. I have a personal website as well, .com, and that has all the information about me, what I do. The medical scholarship landing page is on that website. It's a page on that website. It covers everything. It gives you a really good sense. There's videos on there. There's a welcome message that I've recorded as well and how to contact me. So my website's really a good way to get in touch as well. So all the links will be down below, depending on which platform you are on. And please go ahead and follow. You will not be disappointed. I literally, I mean, I'm all over it every day with what you're posting. And I just want to just say that you are actually, you're, you made your dad proud. I 100% guarantee that. But one thing that I can say is you actually are a doctor, like doctor you are a doctor he actually got his way in the end I know, yes. <laughs> a doctor I of law not medicine but yes yeah but you are a doctor <laughs> I, I, am, I, I, I love that I love that and to end <laughs> on that to say that dad had his way in the end and I just say thank you so much for taking the time to be here we are definitely privileged 
and don't forget to follow and comment and share share this widely this is an this is an episode not to be missed thank you so much